Hello, camera operating nurse. Wow. Hi, I'm Rob Paulson, and you may know me better as Pinky from Pinky in the Brain, and hey, God, you're watching Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Nerf! Get out of everybody! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess and take it to be guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. From the B-Listers room in the Alien Event Flash Mob Facility on Sub-Level 9, deep in Area 51, hello and welcome to TalkCast 311, this week's edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Enjoying pina colada pork rinds tonight, I am the Dome. It's, it sounds just like it tastes. Joining the TalkCast tonight, some of the gang of five in the Acton TARDIS resurfacing plant, the technical anarchist, it's our own button-pushing, keyboard-clacking girl genius, Kriana. Thank you. <laughs> From the stacks of her personal space in the Dank Dungeons Industrial Card Catalog Unfolding and Desalinization Plant, she's befriended robots all along the East Coast with her nemesis, the mute button. Welcome to the Zombrarian. Welcome to the Zombrarian. She's muted again, isn't she? Oh, well, returning... <laughs> Returning from a three-week retraining at the West Rutherford Karmic Con, a festival of karma inspired by Bruce Springsteen, the man who asked me just the other day, why does popcorn smell? Our Midwestern correspondent, the guy who likes shiny stuff, Awake by Java. Hi. You know, we spend a lot of time saying, yeah, people come on the show once, and that's usually it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Christine Rush has been here twice. This is her second appearance on the show. It was like a year and a half ago when she was on our Guests with Long Names night. And uh, I think she's forgotten. No, uh, I, I remember. <laughs> Christine, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. My <laughs> oh, God, you remember and you came back anyway. God bless you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Well, in that case, you're going to have a good time. No. I'd like uh, to. <laughs> you may uh, remember Christine under a myriad of other names, including Krista Lake uh, for her uh, futurism sci-fi, Christine Grayson, uh, Christine Dexter. Can, can I ask why you did that? Oh, it has to do with traditional publishing and, and the way that publishing was in the 90s. Um, you want the long explanation or the short one? Oh, I want the one that you want to tell me. How's that? Oh, okay. Well, the, uh, the long explanation <laughs> is that um, because of the way that publishing, it, it still works that way, but now we have self-publishing and indie publishing, so it's not as important. But uh, if you wanted to write in a different genre, uh, it had an impact on your sales numbers, and um, 
for example, the romance genre sells much higher numbers than the science fiction genre. So if I wrote a science fiction book and then I tried to sell a romance novel, the romance novel, they would say no, because even if I had a best-selling science fiction book, the numbers would be maybe a quarter what the romance was. The romance really? people would, yep. Wow. And the romance people would say, uh-uh, you don't sell very well. Now, if you reverse it, and I'd written a romance novel, and then I wrote a science fiction novel, the science fiction people would go, wow, she writes, and she makes so much money writing. And then they would be disappointed because of the sales. So the way around that would have been, was to use a different name for every genre, and then um, make sure that um, my readers knew that it was still me. I was going to say, who were you fooling besides a bunch of bean counters in a building somewhere? A bunch of bean counters in a building somewhere. Ah, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I imagine it. it gets a little schizophrenic after a while, though. It does, because it's not so necessary now. I don't sell my novels um, to the, the what are now called the big five publishers anymore, because their contracts are so bad. Um, I indie publish, or I publish through WMG Publishing, which is a small traditional publishing company that I have a, a small stake in. Um, and um, so... I just, I do it that way. And it, it, now I feel schizophrenic all the time. It's like, am I writing a Grayson book or, and I, am I writing a Rush book? And I wish I could, you know, kind of erase the last 15 years of, I wrote this under this name and that under that name, but I can't. So there are readers who only read the Chris Nelscott mysteries and readers who only read the Christine Grayson's. And I don't w want to confuse them by just putting it all into Rush. So I so have to pay attention. <laughs> It's it's a damn shame, but you do have to pay attention to it. I do. It's just sad. So talk to me a little bit about WMG Publishing, because that's kind of a, a, a small independent publisher that you said, quote, I have a stake in. I do. Uh, Dean and I, back, my husband, Dean Wesley Smith, um, back when Kindle was new, you know, 2009, yep. 85,000 years ago, it feels like. Um, I took a novella of mine called The Retrieval Artist and I put it up on Kindle. And I made, in one month, I made $15. And I went, oh my goodness, this is the way of the future. $15 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but considering the fact that that novella hadn't been reprinted for a long time and all this other stuff, and I suddenly went, oh my goodness, people are buying it with, I did no promotion, I had a bad cover, I did all the everything wrong and people still bought it I went uh-oh and so I said to Dean for years Dean would say to me we need to start another publishing company we ran Pulp House Publishing in the 90s and I said no we're not doing that so I went into his office and I said showing him the retrieval artist thing I said we need to start a publishing company and he said uh what <laughs> and <laughs> I said yeah we need to start a publishing company and so we did but we decided because we were really we're writers. We would rather be writing. So we we funded it. We got it going. And then we hired a bunch of really good people who now run it. So um, we have a financial stake in it, but we don't run it. We don't keep it going. They do. And it works out beautifully because they're doing a great job, mostly Allison Longuera. And um, in, in addition to our stuff, there's the Fiction River Anthology series and a whole bunch of new projects that are coming on board soon that are going to be mostly short fiction projects, but uh, our novels and everything else. So Dean and I have nothing to do with the day-to-day -day running of it, which is usually great and sometimes very frustrating. And um, 
it's but I imagine like 90% of the time that's what you want it is exactly what I want so I can spend my <laughs> afternoon at home writing and and uh, you know the rest occasionally they call me and ask me weird questions and I'm like oh great I have to decide that but mostly I don't deal with the employees I don't deal with any of that normal stuff that you deal with when you run a business so you brought up the fact that your husband is Dean, Dean Wesley Smith. Both, both of you are, in your own right, very accomplished, wonderful, talented writers. But Thank how you. difficult... You're, you're welcome. I mean, sorry, but that was an obvious. But, <laughs> Not, well, I appreciate it. No, no, it's totally an obvious. But the question is, how is that with the two of you working together in the same space of a house. Does that ever become a problem when you're both working on books at the same time? Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> it's a two-part problem. First, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, the first part is space. Uh, we learned early on that we needed to be on the opposite ends of the house, and the bigger the house, the better. So we have a 5,000-square-foot house. Um, I'm on one side, and he's on the other. And that way we don't bother each other. Even then, we still kind of get in each other's way sometimes. And the other problem is is less intuitive. Um, since, you know, we have a daily life like everybody else. you got to pay bills, and you've got to cook dinner, and you got to do all of that stuff. Um, you lose track of time, and you lose track of what you're doing. And unless we're kind of organized, we have no idea what we're doing. So... Um, <laughs> Okay. When we first got together, we went, after about two years of being chronically behind on bills and everything else, we went to see Damon and Kate, Damon, Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm, and said, how in the world do you run a household with two writers? And they said, you got to make appointments. You make appointments to plan your week. You make appointments to plan your bill paying. You make appointments to do everything. And then you keep them. And ever since we did that, now we're fine. But, you know, when your imagination takes you to the moon and other places, you don't realize that suddenly it's April. In fact, you know, it's April 15th and your taxes are due. And it's like, what? Suddenly it's April. <laughs> I like that concept. Suddenly it's April. It's April. Uh, it is, I, was, I actually wrote a book, uh, one of the Smokey Dalton books, and it was set in um, February. And I wrote it in July. And I kept telling, writing down the date as February. I kept walking outside going, why isn't it snowing? Um, I, my imagination was so deep in that that I, I had completely lost track. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, I find it wonderful that the two of you can create together separately. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, it makes complete sense, and okay. we do. And we're very different in our process and everything else. So what is your process like when you, when you have that, that spark that says, I've got a story here, I've got to start working on it? Well, mine is pretty simple. I get an image, and I think, oh, well, that's a great idea. And when we were first together, young writers, I would say to Dean, hey, a guy on a bus. <laughs> and he would say, yeah. And I would say, isn't that great? And he'd say, um, no. What about the guy on the bus? 
because Dean is a very plot-oriented, process kind of person. I want to find out what about the guy on the bus, and I want to write it to figure it out. Dean wants to know why the guy's on the bus, what the bus has to do with the plot, whether we're writing science fiction or not, right from the start. I don't know until I'm done. <laughs> so working together was always, was always a challenge until we figured out that we have such different process that he does the plot, and then I do what we call the coloring, which is, you know, the dialogue and the voices and the characters and, and kind of fleshing it all out. That was it, the only way we could work together. It's funny because uh, I reread last week the first Retrieval Artist novel, mm-hmm. and I kind of had that feeling of being there as it's happening, experiencing it, and that sense of wonder in, in like, what the hell happens next? And I was hoping that that's the way you actually wrote it. That is the way I write. Because what's the point otherwise? I, re- I write because I want to get the stories that I'd like to read. And, and if I already knew how it all ended and stuff, it wouldn't be fun. It would just be kind of work. And I, who wants to work? Well, it is work. But, I mean, you, you've actually taken that work and, and turned it into something that excites you. And if it excites you you'll assume that people who read it are going to be excited by it as well. And your assumptions are pretty much right on. Oh, thank you. Actually, I don't assume they're going to like it. I hope they're going to like it. And I I sincerely mean that. Um, Because I write for me first, and then I put it out there. But I hope people will like it. Because um, I can't presume to know what people are going to like. And they surprise me every time. That's why I try to have as much of my stuff out there as possible. Because... Sometimes, and I do a free fiction on Monday, and every now and then I put up a free short story that I think, oh, you know, this got panned by the critics, or oh, it was hard to write, or something, and I'm just kind of cringing. I'm thinking, everybody's going to hate it, and chances are that's the one everybody loves. How much are you affected by critical response, or lack of critical response, or what you feel is unwarranted negative critical response? How does that affect you as as a writer and and what you put out? It affects me less now than it did. Um, Because I've worked in publishing as long as I have and because I've worn pretty much every hat except agent. I have a real... Oh, thank God. No, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Uh, I I have a pretty clear view of, uh, you know, what a critical response is worth. Um, a critical response, good or bad, is a reaction. It's publicity. And it can be used in one way or another. Um, and if I look at it from that perspective, it has almost no impact on what I write. If I look at it from the perspective of people have to give me feedback about what I'm doing, um, then I have to know where the critic is coming from. You know, you remember um, when Siskel and Ebert were doing their, their shit oh, together? God, yes. Yeah, the fat guy and the skinny guy. And, you know, sometimes you had to figure out, you know, did you agree with the fat guy or did you agree with the skinny guy? I always figured out if the skinny guy liked it, I'd hate it. And if the fat guy liked it, I'd like it because Ebert was a science fiction fan. Well, Um, not not only that, but he wrote some of the trashiest stuff in the world. Oh, I know. I know somebody who starred in um, Inside the Valley of the Dolls. No way. (laughs) Yeah, he used to live in, in the town I live in now. And, um... Yeah, she she was one of the stars, and uh, <laughs> okay. yeah, uh, I've lived a weird life. 
tried so hard to bury that one, didn't he? Yes, he did, but it's there. <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you take that perspective and you realize that critics are people with taste and um, opinions of their own that you may or may not agree with, then you're okay with it. I know so many writers who take every criticism to heart, and they really shouldn't read that stuff then. They should just kind of let it go by. If people are buying their work, that's what counts, is that the readers buy it and then readers like it. I love hearing from readers. Do you um, think that's a function, though, of their age? And I don't necessarily mean chronological age, but age in terms of years that they've been writing. The, the, the more time you spend the less relevant uh, the vitriol is and the more you, you can look at that and maybe under, at least get something out of it rather than take it personally. Oh, I wish it were a function of and writing age. I think you're right. You know, it is, you know, how long you've been writing. But it's not. It's more, um, when I'm teaching writers, I tell them that writer, you know, writers are a combination of insecurity and ego. And... Um, you know, we're always insecure about what we do. We don't necessarily believe in it, but we also are egotistical about it because we put it out there. And if we weren't egotistical, we wouldn't think it was worthy of being put out there. And I think writers get really confused at times. New writers, established writers, they all get confused about what's important. And sometimes a critic can hurt, hook into that insecurity and then a writer will spiral. Because I've known a lot of writers who... Um, have been around for a long time who will get knocked off by something critical. Wow. Wow. And I, yeah, my reaction is kind of like yours. It's wow. But some of it is the state of the industry was so difficult the last 10, 15 years that, um, writers were beginning to wonder if they were no longer relevant, if their work had gone downhill. And so they were looking for every answer they could possibly find. And the real answer was that the industry had changed. Traditional publishing had become conglomerates and they had brought in you know all of that uh, um, that thinking that you have when you're making toilet paper that you have to have sell x many widgets in this quarter in order to make a profit um, and books became widgets and so if a writer wasn't performing to standard whatever the standard was they were kicked to the curb it had nothing to do with quality it had nothing to do with anything but writers working in their little offices had lost track of of the changes that were going on and they'd only realized that there were changes when they came up for contract renewal which either didn't happen or their advances got cut or they got a new editor who was a widget minded editor who was like well you know you're not writing right now it's vampires that are popular and you're not putting vampires in your hard science fiction novels so therefore you're not doing a good job hey, uh, could you make them sparkly please <laughs> <laughs> and they they like the taste of blood because it tastes like strawberries. There you go. <laughs> now you understand what it is we have to try and make you sell. Perfect. So yeah. that's why you've never... But but now you, you've actually become an editor your own self. Again. Again. I've been editing off and on for... You know, I used to edit the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and I edited for Pulp House. Oh, and excuse me, but you edited the magazine of fantasy and science fiction when it was good. <laughs> Can I just say oh, that? I know why I like you. <laughs> dead up front. I mean, for years, it was the standard bearer of, of immediate short fiction, and, and I got to tell you, it was... When it was at its best, you were there. Thank you. 
You're welcome. It's absolutely true, though. I mean, you know, as, as a guy who, who loved pulp science fiction and who devoured uh, fantasy and science fiction, devoured Asimov's, de devoured all those magazines, I mean, that was my life for years. That's kind of sad. Sorry about that. <laughs> it was my life, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got paid for it, and I bought it. So, you know, there's a slight difference there. Oh, but it was very slight, because I got paid just about as much as you paid for one of <laughs> <laughs> the, the, And then, then the question is, why'd you do it? For the love. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much why I edit. edit there's no money in editing at all. The money's in the writing. Um, and I love to write too, but I really, you know, what I love the most about editing is sharing stories that I find. Wow. I read this story. It is so good. You have to read it. And that's what I love about it. So that, that brought about Fiction River? That's what brought about Fiction River was that whole idea of, yay, now we have a publishing company. I can do this and, and I can start showing, because there are a bunch of writers. You'll notice if you look at Fiction River where we have even, um, kind of a stable of writers now and they weren't getting as much traction in the other magazines as I thought they should. These are writers whose work I'd been seeing for years, and they're, they're spectacular writers, and they weren't getting the traction. And I thought, you've got to read these stories. You absolutely have to read these people. If I were still editing FNSF, I'd be buying these people. Um, and, you know, I'm not. But Or if I were editing Ellery Queen, because I do a lot of mystery editing now, which I love, um, I would be buying these people. Some of them were selling to the the Mystery Digest, but they weren't selling to science fiction or fantasy, and I thought they should have been. And so, uh, yeah, boy, I'm enjoying doing that again. I really love it. I, I think what we're gleaning from this is that when you enjoy doing something, it just kind of blossoms outward. Yes. <laughs> yep. And when I don't enjoy it, you'll know it, too. <laughs> That's why people don't like being around me when I don't enjoy what's going on. <laughs> You're fairly upfront and straightforward about it, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm kind of blunt. <laughs> well, you, you kind of fit right in here then, so we're, we're, yeah. we're good with that. So talk to me about what's happening with Fiction River right now. We are finishing up, I think it's the third year, moving into the fourth. Um, uh, you're airing this on Saturday night. Um, right. On the 31st, the issue sparks has just will just come out it is our first ya issue it's edited by rebecca mesta who some people know as kevin j anderson's wife um but you know we're the thing about fiction river is that we are not limited by genre we are limited right. by quality of story and that's why dean and i list ourselves as series editors we read everything that comes through we hire other editors to do it to keep it fresh to bring in other people and other perspectives um i would never have thought of doing a ya issue and the thing about Sparks is it is it's kind of like the op we have a horror issue coming up in next year some point and it's like the opposite everything is uplifting but it's not uplifting in that kind of trekly way of too sweet and sugary it's more realistic and it's really neat um it just has to have this kind of spark of of creativity or spark of joy that's why it's called Sparks and um so we've just put together um, the next year or so, and then I think in the fall, um, we will probably do another Kickstarter because that's kind of how we do our subscription drives is through Kickstarter in addition to doing um, um, 
you know, the standard subscription drives. We'll do a Kickstarter subscription drive. And we've just started another side Fiction River, which is called Fiction River Presents. It's edited by Alison Longuera, who runs WMG. And she's just kind of putting together past stories of st- that have been published in Fiction River. The first one is debut authors uh, from the first year, showing the authors whose first short stories were published in Fiction River. And um, I think the next one is... Um, Oh, something weird. I can't remember the, you know, it's like weird stories. I can't remember what she called it. Oh, I think it's The Unexpected. Fiction River presents The Unexpected. And these are off-the-wall stories. One's by Ray Vuksevich. They're by a whole bunch of really interesting writers um, that are um, going to, you know, they, and they wrote uh, Robert Tishonik. Um He's a, he's a YA writer as well. Um, and so it's just a bunch of really Unusual stories that oh Steve Perry wrote a story for that oh cool yeah yeah <laughs> I mean he was in um, I think that it was in Time Streams is the issue that the story had initially been in um, might have been something else I can't remember God I don't um, think I've read anything from Steve Perry in a while well I got and I don't know why because Steve doesn't like to write a lot of short fiction unless I browbeat him and fortunately he only lives about two hours away so every time I see him I browbeat him for fiction and uh, he wrote one of the classics I think that we published in Pulp House it was called Willie of the Jungle and I've got to reprint that at some point yes you do yep. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm hoping beyond hope that as these kickstarters and new things come up you'll come back You'll bring some of the writers with you so that we can talk about it and, and our listeners can can hear about it and, and help support this kind of cottage industry of quality. I would love to do that. I will definitely <clears throat> let you guys know. That would be awesome. Yeah, because we're doing <clears throat> a whole bunch of... The thing that's gotten me going, I don't know if you've been paying attention to some of the stuff that I've been doing, but I have, I have a project coming out of Bain called Women of Futures Past. I got mm-hmm. really upset that um, a lot of the history of women in science fiction got lost. It got lost so badly that young female writers were telling me that present company accepted there were no women. who wrote That's absolutely fiction. ridiculous. But I know, I know. <coughs> but it, I went around and I was teaching a science fiction course after that and I wanted to get some, I was kind of mad. So I thought, okay, I'll get an anthology that has some of the classic stories written by women. And, you know, there wasn't any. There were the like the women of wonder stuff from the seventies, but and then Pam did another one in the nineties. But there really wasn't anything of just like Lois McMaster Bujold and all the writers that are winning CJ Cherry and all the writers who are winning awards for writing science fiction. It wasn't gender oriented science fiction, it was science fiction. It was just good science fiction, yeah. Yeah. And so I put that together with Tony and I were brains Tommy Weisskopf of Bain, and we decided we're going to do that. And I realized so many of these stories just not never got reprinted, ever. They got lost. And then I realized that when Isaac Asimov died in 1992, he and Marty Greenberg had been doing like the Hugo Awards every year. Right. They've been doing an anthology of the Hugo Awards every year. And when Isaac died, Connie Willis did one. And she finished up the series, but then they never sold another one. So in 1992, all of the um, Hugo Award short stories never got reprinted. They didn't get reprinted in the year's bests because a lot of the year's bests were compiled before the Hugo nominations even came out. Um, And they never got reprinted anywhere else. So everybody assumed that all the stories were published by men. You know, because the year's bests generally only had like about 
a quarter of the stories were by women or even less. Not that I believe that there should be a quota system, but at that time, women were winning the bulk of the science fiction awards. And they weren't getting reprinted. And a lot of them were still writing under pseudonyms at that point as well. No, no, no. no. It was, you know, um, there was a year where Connie Willis won like two of three of the major short story awards. Um, Nancy Cress, names you would recognize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lois. I mean, Lois is (coughs) the biggest Hugo. She has won more Hugos than anybody, I believe. Um, Lois McMaster Bujold. Right, right. or she's either more or tied with Robert Heinlein. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just, it, just not getting the right credit. And a lot of it is simply that it wasn't available. So if you were born in the 1980s or the 1990s, you're just not aware of the history that came before because you can't find it. So one of if the it's things... Not, that, if it's not in print, you're not going to be able to get to it. And that's that's right. Issue. And so, you know, you're not aware of it. And so from their perspective, it was really true that there were no women science fiction writers. So I'm going to be doing a bunch of series of books, um, and we're going to kickstart those too. Um, some of them are going to bring back all the award winners. I think I'm going to put together the, like, the Hugo winners from 1953. And what a horrible stuff. idea. Seriously. I know. It sucks, <laughs> doesn't it? And then, you know, I, I'm hoping if this Women of Futures Past sells well, we'll still be doing a bunch of books through, like this through Bain. Um, if not, I'll do it in, in a different way. And just kind of revive, because it's not just women. There's been a lot of really classic writers who just didn't, fit into what the tastemakers thought was very good. Um, and a lot of these writers were writing things like space opera, which I'm like, okay, that's classic science fiction. But for there was a whole period of time where the tastemakers in the small world of science fiction literature didn't believe space opera was worth reading. No so, space opera. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Can, um, can I just say one author who I literally nobody's heard of that I just fell in love with in, in my in my twenties and thirties was Ron Goulart. I love Ron. I bought a lot of his stuff for FNSF. Who who, you know, wrote in, in the sci-fi and and wrote mysteries and oh my God, and people don't know his stuff anymore. No, and he's still around, he's still doing stuff. Um <sighs> Yeah, you know, it's hard to get him on the show. Let me tell you. Oh my oh, god! Oh, he'd be he'd be a great interview. He I used know. to love getting Ron's manuscripts in. It, he would publish at Pulp House, and he published at FNSF. Mm-hmm. And back before Ron got a computer, his he always typed on colored paper, and then he would like make a correction and white out everything, and then he would <laughs> he would illustrate the white out. So he would draw illustrations in the corner. His manuscripts were as interesting as his stories. I can't imagine him not doing that. I mean, you know, I would sit there and read his novels and just kind of go, I'm getting close to the end of the book, and I don't see any way to resolve any of this. And then in the last ten pages of the book, he would just pull off a a gorgeous masterstroke, and he'd sit there and you'd go, holy crap, nice ending. Oh, yeah. He's great. (laughs) He's just amazing. did you ever read his old Hollywood stuff? The stuff set in, he had a yes. Oh, I love yes. those stories. And, and it wasn't until maybe 15 years after reading all his sci-fi stuff that I realized that he wrote mysteries as well. Yep. And that was just like a whole different, a completely different feel, a completely different writing style. And yet 
clearly still him. Yep. I, for, I, I totally for a long time, he was William it. Shatner, you know. Yes, I am aware of the tech series. Yes. In fact, I was at a convention. Oh, my God, I actually liked those books. I was like totally obsessed with those books for like six months at one point yep. in my teenage years. And who did you steal them from to read? I bought them at the bookstore. No. <laughs> Some of them I did. You didn't have them all. <laughs> it, was a ve- it was a very vexing situation. Not having them all for you. It was funny because I, I don't think anybody who knew Ron's style got more than a half page into the tech series without going, what the hell? This mm-hmm. is them. Yep. And I, I remember getting into a fight at a convention with a punk standing in a line to see Shatner with those books. And I'm going, he didn't write them, you idiot. And Shatner was the first to admit it, but he'd admit it in a sideways way, which I always loved. He would say, well, I found a way to channel Ron Goulart. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they even put his name on them? He was just like, hey, I want to I want to have a sci-fi book series. Pretty much that's how it <laughs> happened. Well, no, what, how random. those things come about? No, it's not that random. Um, they really want to do a series. They have... The, uh, most stars, Shatner's more hands-on than others, will actually come up with part of the, the plot. And sometimes he'll do uh, brainstorming with the writer. I mean, there's there's been a couple of writers or actors who do vanity projects, and they really just don't want to be bothered. Um, but a lot of them want to write a book or have part of writing a book or do the brainstorming. Shatner's one of them. That's why he's done so many. He likes the brainstorming part. So it's basically like, do all the fun parts and none of the hard parts. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're clear. Yep. Well, please pass on to Ron that one of his biggest fans l- would love to get him on. Okay. Good lord. The, sh- the show. The show. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to broker anything else. Thank you, Kriana. Really clear where we're going here. Jesus, God in heaven above. (laughs) Well, that would have been awkward. Oh, it's going to be awkward in any case. It's it's going to be the same thing, you know. When I when I sit down and interview somebody who I've admired for years. And I or just kinda... if someone has really nice boobs. I mean, like, the amount of things that fluster you are not limited to that. He is male, right? Heterosexual male. Yes. So, that just goes with the, with the territory. Thanks for Kristen. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I have been known to sit, sit in front of a, a, a television star who is incredibly beautiful by anybody's standards and just kind of go, Hi. And that's about it. It's, and why, we, it's a widely known fact that males are not in possession of all their faculties at any point. Yep, pretty much, especially me. No well, question. when you, if you ever interview Dean, ask him about all the times I was introduced to Ray Bradbury. Oh, good lord! <laughs> it was the same thing. I we we interviewed that girl oh. who made that song about Ray Bradbury. That was a fun song. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. And and we actually used the picture she had when she sang it to him, which, oh, was, no. which was, it was very interesting watching the look on his face. Oh, that's funny. 
Uh, you know, you know, I just, I, we, we could, we've, we've talked for 45 minutes already because you're, you're an interesting lady and you do a lot of cool stuff and, and we definitely want to have you back as many times as you'll put up with our silliness. Oh, sure. This is fun. You guys talk about stuff that that I like talking about. So, and you know, Kriana, we could probably do some news right about now. Two, three. Yeah, I totally wasn't ready for it that time. <laughs> <laughs> How about now? Sure. I had to switch desktops. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to confuse you. So what do you say, guys? What what do we feel like talking about today? Do we want to talk about Batman versus Superman second week tanking? Is there a well, reason we could to talk, talk about it at all? We could talk about how, um, in in the vein of celebrities thinking that they're writers, we could talk <laughs> about Ben Affleck, who has already put together a script for a solo Batman movie, starring him, starring him. Yeah. He will also direct. Oh, no. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because, like, who are all the people who are like, he's not that bad when I, like, vomited when he got cast? No, I, no, I no. need to vomit on them again. No, I've got to tell you, though, but if you look at season two But of, I'm not going to. I know you're not going to, and you're entitled not to. But I already have looked at, at season two of Daredevil, and it's quite... No spoilers. Vomit. Mm-hmm. Speaking of vomit... <laughs> No spoilers. It's significantly better than season one was. Oh, nice. That can't can't have been hard. I was not a fan of season one. Uh, But I I just can't imagine why he's trying to make a solo Batman movie happen. Um, I have three letters for you. Ego. Uh, I've got five letters for you. Money. But no, you know what? Here's the thing: is that I really do think that Ben Affleck is a fan. I think he is, but I mean, it doesn't make him good at his job. It doesn't. It doesn't make him, you know, anything more than a fan. I, 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 and I think that he's done some interesting stuff in his career. I have not seen Batman. I did not see the Daredevil movie. Um. Oh, no, we're not talking the Daredevil movie, because he wasn't in that, thankfully. Oh, he was talking about the, um, the, Netflix, the Netflix show, which the Netflix we, we didn't even, did we even make it through the first episode, Zombarian, before we were just like, nope. Oh, there's a reason for that, guys. What's that? And then you go back to it, it's yellow. It wasn't, that did bother me, I, you know, yes. It was supposed to. They but filmed that it wasn't the whole yellow. thing. That wasn't no, it's the whole violent thing. and yellow. And it <laughs> slowly got... Intri- Once you figured out the lighting, it was really intriguing. <laughs> but, the, the lighting is not the main thing that bothered me about it. Yeah, it was hard to see, but whatever, I guess. No, no, the use of yellow in the color pl- palette when you when you do filming makes is designed to make somebody uncomfortable and not want to be there. Did it? Yeah. Worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, it was and, more and that and the as plot watched... was too dimensional and I didn't enjoy it at all. Daredevil's I mean, like I, I didn't like any of the characters. I found nothing I could identify with and I was just like, 
I don't know why I'm sitting here and watching this. I could be watching almost any other thing and be happier. Yeah, the that's, about that's how I was too. at that point. And then I got, I continued watching and it got better. And once I realized they were trying to make me uncomfortable, I was cool with it. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing about Daredevil. I mean, the they were taking a character that, that had a horrible treatment in the movie. Yeah. And, and they were trying to do something interesting with it. And I think that they succeeded, especially when you compare it to the other Marvel characters that are, you know, just from the from the cinematic universe you know that are just stand up and they 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 fight aliens in the city and and this is a more personal story it's more down in the grip of humanity um and that's kind of the also the character of Dare, daredevil um as a as a character too and i like that they're doing the tv universe that itch for me so i'm I'm really wow that was good yeah yeah i still haven't watched it Oh, oh my god, really okay, that's too. a tragedy we can all agree on. Yeah, yep. absolutely. I, uh, House of Cards is what we started tonight, so. Oh, well, okay. Uh, Good for I, I, will, I, I guess, will. I don't know. So, I, I just wanted to bring up one thing about, uh, on movies.com, I, I, I actually read a... Uh, on movies.com? Yeah. Is that a reputable That's a website? It's, it's actually a website. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I actually I actually read a post by Jamal Igel, who who's been on the show, God, at this point half a dozen times. Uh, I don't think that and he said, I think I've finally killed any chance I have of working for DC in the near future. And the uh, the link directed a you to a movies.com article that says See how DC comic writers and artists reacted to Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. And I mean, Jerry Ordway was in it, uh, Art Thiebert was in it, and uh, Norm Brayfogle was in it, who was all they were, filled They were just with... disgusted, weren't they? Uh, no, no. They were uh, not disgusted, and that's why we hate them? Uh you know, I'm happy to see, you know, Norm Brayfogle said, I'm happy to say that my expectations of disagreeing with most of the negative critics have come true. Although Man of Steel was rotten at the core in terms of Superman's relationship, I'm happy to say that none of those problems exist in this film because it was largely a Batman film. And Jamal opens with, I've decided to pass on seeing it. There are many reasons for this, and most of them are really personal to me. The first being... Zack Snyder. And at that point, I went, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, you've made a huge mistake in public. <laughs> uh, he's allowed to live. I like it. <laughs> I like him a lot, but, I mean, you know. I can respect that. I, I can actually... Hey, act- hey respect- if I had a nickel for every time I said how much I hated J.J. Abrams, right? Am I right? Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I just watched uh, Star Wars Episode Seven. I'm sorry. And I am so disappointed. Where's your but, vomit bag? <laughs> it's right here, sitting next to me. Uh, it was just not not. I, fun. I've decided that all the people who said that I would like that movie also said I would like Mad Max, and therefore should be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> ignored. Uh, what else is happening this week? It's just there's been a lot. Anything but stuff. that. Yeah. I mean, literally oh! anything. 
Comedy Central's Moonbeam City, a science fiction animated series, has been canceled because it's not funny. Okay, all right. Now, I'm going to take this in a different direction because this is all really boring news that we've been doing like every single week for ad nauseum. Okay. So, like, what do you want to talk about? Why is news so boring? Okay, I'm going to talk about this new channel that used to be ABC Family that has. It's What is it now, Zombarian? Do you remember? Is it like Pulse or something ridiculous? Because they're trying it's, to market it to young adults. It's, it's ridiculous. something ridiculous. It's basically the new CW, only they can't call it the CW. It, it's like the CW, but less like... CW Light. No. Remember when the WB... Was good. ...became two channels? Mm-hmm. It's like that. Ah. Uh. And so they're the ones running Shadowhunters. They run Pretty Little Liars. And they're running a show that just started its second season called Stitchers, which is, it's called Freeform now. Yes, that's what it's called. Called Ooh. Stitchers is the show, and it is a decidedly excellent piece of very entertaining science fiction. Is it deep? No. Not really, no. Is it entertaining? Hell yes. Really? Is it something that I have not, like, okay, she gets into this tub of water, and she can read the memories of dead people. So it's basically a combo um, sci-fi drama and procedural. procedural. Kind of. It's got procedural oh. elements sometimes, but not always. And it It's like Law and Order with cat Freaking suits. fantastic. Their science team has an equal number of men and women of mixed races. Nice. Many their, races. Their leader... <coughs> Oh, yeah, I guess. Yes. You got what I mean. Yes. No, I understood what you mean, yeah. You know, the leader of their whole team is a strong woman. The main character is a strong woman. And a strong woman with a mental illness that is not a liability. It's an asset. So yes. what's the name of the show again? Stitchers. Stitchers. It's fantastic. The first season is short. It's only 11 episodes. Uh, and what's her name from Warehouse 13 is in it? The awesome one. Um, Now I can't remember her name. Allison Scagliotti. Oh, cool. You know you want to watch it. It's yeah, amazing. like all of a sudden I do, actually. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm looking at the cast now. Because Allison Scagliotti is, is like the funny one while this other girl has no emotions, right? So she's like the straight man to Allison Scagliotti. So great. Which so must be impossible. Like, I great. would kill to see <laughs> the blooper so reel funny. from every episode. She's so funny. And the cast is really, really, really good. Like, the whole thing. Even all of the other actors are great. Um, I don't even know how to describe it any farther except for that it's really awesome. And so, every so are you recommending <laughs> it? Everyone, everyone should be watching this instead of agonizing over shitty movies that big comic companies put out. Like, this because, is what we need. This is what we need. Because it's original material, which is something we always clamor for. And, and it's getting no it attention. It's and it gets none. no attention. And I actually started another one of their series the other day, and now I can't remember what it is. But it was about this girl who, when she turned 16, 
gained powers of being a descendant of Bastet, the cat god. That's awesome. It was Why really... aren't we both watching? I don't know. <laughs> I just started like one episode of it to see if it was good, and I really liked it. Um, I mean, it's all it's all made for you know young adults, but it's who doesn't love it? It's like almost on the vein of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Wow. I, I mean, it's not on that level of quippy. It's in, it's in that. But it it kind of took me back for a minute because this is, of course, this. The channel that ran Dawson's Creek. So, I am really looking for this show, and I cannot freaking find it. Oh, I just found it. Oh, the other one? No, yeah. no clue. So, I'm, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to take a look at it this week, and, and we're going to talk about Stitchers next week. Because uh, uh, We've already st- told you basically everything there is. To know. <laughs> no, but, but you, should, you should watch it. You should watch it. Everybody sure. should watch it and then tell us how right we are. <laughs> the Nine Lives of Chloe King. That's what it's called. That's a terrible name. Oh, no, I guess you know what? No. It must have it must have only run for one season. It's an old one. It's from 2011. But I've been going through the like on-demand stuff in their in their Apple TV app. And again, only one episode, but she gets these like long cat claw nails when she wants them and it's very cool. I was just like, where, like, why did this only run for 11 episodes one season? Like, why, why is no one talking about Stitchers? Why is no one talking about Shadowhunters? I mean, I like the lead actress on that one a lot less than I like the one on Stitchers, but it's still, did they ever actually make that movie? Which one? City of Bones? Yes. Did it tank or something? I don't remember. So probably yes. Because <laughs> I vaguely remember. But the... I'm not sure they titled it the same. They, you know, they do these things no, with the did. subtitles. The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, PG-13. Yep. IMDb, oh, Rotten Tomatoes, 12%. Yeah. Yikes. Wow. Yes. So so they must have picked it up. Like, this, this still had the potential to be a film like thing and they picked it up on freeform and I think it's actually excelling there I really do well I think it's all right now becoming about community again where you know you don't have to have the huge audience and appeal to the masses you can appeal to a fan base I think that's so much better I think I agree with you like a thousand percent because it brings it brings back up to the forefront stuff that was actually missed by most people the first time around. Well, that or- and these things that are coming out on, on Freeform, and I've just noticed it with this channel, all strong female characters or very evenly divided cast, like extremely evenly divided cast. I'm just, like, scanning through their lineup right now, and I actually don't even see one that has a male lead right now. And huh. that's kind of crazy, right? No, that's kind of nice okay, to have something. Okay, there's, like, one, the Baby Daddy. That one probably has a male lead. Kind of have to, Maybe yeah. ten <laughs> things I hate about you. I don't know who is actually the lead in that one because I hate we, that movie. We watch Baby Daddy. It's It's hilarious. amusing. It's amusing. But, like, but like this, this is what we want and no one's paying right. attention to it. And if we don't pay attention to it, it's going to go away again. Yep. 
That's what happened with women in science fiction. <laughs> exactly. We've brought the conversation full circle. So we're bringing it back on television. We're bringing it back in movies. We're bringing it back in print and in ebooks. And my God, we've done it again. Wasted another hour. Christine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it was fun. Thank you guys for asking me. Uh, we're asking you back a whole hell of a lot more after this, let me tell you. Sounds cool to me. Uh, okay, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Well, I don't know what's coming up in the next couple of weeks, <laughs> but I know that next week we're going to have Doug Jones with us. Are we really? We Doug really are. I it know. <laughs> our guy, Yay. Doug Jones. That, no, no, nobody cares. Next week, Doug Jones. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Boston Comic Con, Granite Con, Northeast Comic Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Our intro music production was provided by Rob Watts. Find more of his creations at RobWattsOnline, all one word, dot com. But delete the all one word at that point. Our outro music was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Check out more of their grooves at lawrencemademecry.com. I want to thank our guest, the amazing, articulate Christine Catherine Rush, for joining us tonight. Thank you, and please come back again soon. I certainly will. Many thanks to our gang from the Act in Action Time Warp, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, and woman of words, Zombrarian. Thank you so much, ladies. You're welcome. And nice cough. Captain Crunch once again. Thanks, Java. No baby yet. Okay, good. So you can actually stop and have a drink at this point. This is Dome Center. <laughs> Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened. Shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody.